Welcome to the Little White Cabin and our listening series, A New York Yankee in the Heart of Dixie. I'm your host, Oscar Bronx. And today I've got a story for you, a local story from here in East Alabama. That's about, oh, let's say it's about a boy and his dog in sort of an extreme fashion. You'll see what I mean in a minute. The pastor at my girlfriend's church is a guy named Finch. Interesting guy. Looks like he might have been a greaser back in the day, you know, the way he slicks his hair back and it's got these sharp sideburns. Real down-to-earth country boy, you know, with all the scars and wrinkles of a hard life and as patient as the day is long, let me tell you. Finch is involved in what they call a prison ministry, where he goes to prisons, county jails, and all that, and ministers to inmates. He's got this saying how even the vilest of sinners can be redeemed, and I'm telling you, I don't know if that's true, but you got to give him his props. He gives it his best shot. I mean, he'll go in there and mingle with the worst of the worst, try to change their hearts and minds, put them on the right track, you know, whatever. Anyway, I told him I admired what he was doing, and I'd love to tag along sometime. And he said, sure, come along, glad to have you. I was shocked. I mean, I know diddly about religion. What could I add? I just like to collect stories. Anyway, next time he went, I tagged along. So we're going to see a guy in the county lockup, a young guy serving time on a dogfighting conviction. And I tell him, remember Michael Vick? Some people say guys like that who abuse animals are just bad to the bone. They can't be fixed and that we ought to lock them up and throw away the key. But then he gives me his line about the vilest sinner, and he says if he believed that there was a single human being that could not be redeemed by Jesus, then he'd walk away from the prison ministry, the church ministry, and he'd go make a living shooting pool or something. And trust me, I've played pool with Finch, he could do it. So he tells me about this kid we're going to see. Name's Jesse, 19 years old, busted for his role in a dogfighting ring. And he was sentenced to some serious hard time. The DA was running for re-election and wanted to make Jesse an example. So she wasn't about to offer a plea deal anyway. What with all these pictures and stories of, you know, bloody mangled pit bulls and these dogs and cats they'd steal from people's yards to use for fighting dogs to practice on. Jesse was public enemy number one around here. Worse than a murderer. Folks wanted his hide. So he got convicted and sentenced to prison. But he had to stay in the county lockup until some overcrowding issues at the prison got cleared up. Beyond that, Finch didn't know much about Jesse. Apparently, another inmate told Jesse about Finch, so Jesse got word out that he wanted to meet him. So, off we go to the county hooskow to meet Jesse. Now, Finch is a real easy guy to open up to, very disarming in a way, especially to cons, I guess because he seems like one of them, you know? So he's able to get Jesse to tell his story, which, more or less goes like this. Jesse grew up an only child of a father who was a long-haul trucker and rarely home, and a mother who was a hoarder and a cat lady who scammed her way into a social security disability paycheck, welfare, food stamps, and any other kind of handout she could get, all the while spouting one Bible scripture after another. After years of this, the house became just a huge clutter of junk, and the place was crawling with cats, and it stunk of cat piss and crap. His old man got tired of it. He grew distant and mean, and finally he left home for good when Jesse was about 12 years old. And by the time he was 15, Jesse couldn't take it anymore either, and he took off too. Now Jesse was not a smart kid, so he did poorly at school. He acted out a lot, got in trouble, and the bullies just had a field day with him, let me tell you. But he fell in with a group of older guys out of school, 
who had this dogfighting ring. You know, just like a kid in the inner city falls in with a street gang, and for the same reasons. And you know, with all such groups, brutality is a crucial part of the deal. A willingness to do violence on behalf of the group is proof you belong. And that's how it was for Jesse and the Frog Level Kennel Club. Frog Level. There's a southern name for you, right? So from the time he was 15 to the day he got busted, Jesse did whatever it took to be a member in good standing. He'd clean up the pens, feed the dogs. He'd go out and steal people's pets, dogs and cats and chickens and whatnot. And they'd use these animals to train their dogs. And then he'd clean up that bloody mess and get rid of the remains. He even stole a couple of his mother's cats. That's how invested he was. As he gained the guy's confidence and respect, they taught him how to train and breed the dogs and how to manage them in fights. Well, the group let Jesse take this one pup from a litter he bred, and he trained it up to be the club's biggest, baddest fighter, a real beast. He named it Satan. Now, dogfighting is a gambling game, and Satan became the club's biggest draw. And so there was Jesse, a kid who got bullied and called stupid and told he'd never amount to anything, walking around at 19 years old like an outlaw with a chip on his shoulder and a wad of cash in his pockets. A tough guy, a gangster living the thug life, somebody to be taken seriously, you know, respected, feared. And so one day, he goes into this restaurant and he meets this girl, new kid in town, working as a waitress. Josephine is her name, 18 years old, left a family back in Louisiana to be on her own. And it was like love at first sight, you know? They start dating and they fall hard for each other. Now, like any gang, the frog-level kennel club made everybody take a vow of silence, what the mafia calls omerta. But Jesse's feeling his oats, you know. He wants to show off for his girl, his outlaw mojo. And when she asks him what he does for a living, all he says is he's a gambler. He just can't tell her what the game is. But she keeps needling him, trying to get him to open up. And he's itching to tell her the truth. So one day, they're at her place and had just made love, and she whispers in his ear, Talk to me, baby. Tell me who you are. So he does. He gets up, struts around the bedroom, and is altogether like a rooster, you know, cock of the walk. And he tells her about the dogfighting. He expects her to get a thrill at his outlaw appeal, but no. Josephine isn't thrilled. She's appalled, disgusted. And they have this nasty argument, and Jesse storms out. The next day, the cops bust the frog-level kennel club. Big SWAT team assault, you know, a lot of cops, a lot of weapons. I mean, the cops come ready to shoot every last one of those fighting dogs in case the club unleashes them. Lucky for everybody, all the dogs are in their pens, so that doesn't happen. But Jesse takes off running into the woods, and wouldn't you know it, but the cops send one of their canines after him, a dog named Mike. And boy, let me tell you, Mike becomes a hero in the news after that. So Jesse gets handcuffed and thrown in the back of a patrol car. The cops mocking him for being taken down by a dog. And Jesse says to him, Satan eats dogs like Mike for lunch, asshole. I'll tell you what, put them together. Let's see what happens. I dare you. And that's his attitude as he gets dragged into the system, which, of course, doesn't help his case. The jury convicts him and he gets stashed in the county jail until they can find a cell for him in one of the state prisons. Now, Jesse realizes that it wasn't Josephine that turned him in. It was some animal rights activists doing the undercover work. But he still feels betrayed by her. See, the thing with Josephine was she really did have strong feelings for Jesse. 
She had fallen in love, but she had an older brother who got into all sorts of drug dealing and criminality, and he didn't turn his life around until he did hard time in prison. Plus, she found out before the trial that she was pregnant, and Jesse was the father. So she has this dream that they could be a family, but she can't abide the thought of her new husband and the father of a child being involved in something as criminal, you know, and violent and, well, as she put it, sinful as dogfighting. And so she thinks prison would just give Jesse the opportunity to turn his life around, like her brother. So she testifies. Now, part of the judge's sentence is that Jesse has to pay restitution by helping take care of Mike, the canine. As Jesse says, they made me Mike's bitch, feeding him, cleaning up after him, washing down the dog pen and whatnot. Jesse hates Mike. Mike hates Jesse. To the cops, it's a win-win. Plus, they put him on these road cleanup crews, and Jesse was sure they only did it for one reason. They wanted him to try to escape so they could send Mike to take him down again. I mean, everybody, the cops, the court, the jailers, the public, everybody had it in for Jesse. He felt like one man against the world. And then something really weird happened that eventually prompted Jesse to contact Finch. Jesse's out with the road crew. It's around Christmas, late afternoon. A cold front passes through, and they get this wintry mix of sleet, snow, and rain. So workday's over, all the inmates get on the little bus to head back to the jail. It's winter, so it gets dark early. The road is slick. The bus slips off the road and down an embankment, and it flips over onto its top. Everybody's tossed all over the place. The driver and the deputy and several of the inmates are hurt, and Jesse finds that his window had popped out of the bus frame. So he crawls out. I mean, he doesn't want to be stuck in there if the thing catches fire or whatever. He's banged up a bit, cocked on the head like everybody else, and he's trying to figure out what to do when he realizes that they're next to a railroad track and there's a train going by, not very fast. Jesse takes one look up the road in the direction they were heading and the patrol car with the canine in it was out of sight so they couldn't have seen the wreck. And on impulse, he scrambles over to the train and jumps aboard in between two cars. He had taken off his jacket on the bus, so all he had on was his orange jail overalls. And so Jesse rides that train for a while. No hat, no coat. The sun's setting, and it's getting colder with some sleet. He's not sure how long he can last. But the train's heading back toward his old stomping grounds, so he holds on until the train slows and squeals to a stop. He peeks forward, and he sees the engine up at a road crossing, and there's a cop car with its blue lights on and he sees a cop and a canine starting to snoop around the train. So Jesse scoots to the other side of the tracks and takes off running into the woods. He knows that once it gets too dark to see, it's advantage canine. He had felt Mike's bite before, and he didn't want to feel it again. But there was a guy in the club who told him that a man can defeat a police dog if he learns some tricks. And Jesse spent a lot of time in jail imagining what it would take to do that. He swore he'd never be a dog's bitch again. But there in the woods, he's not feeling at all confident that he could really do it. Beat up a police dog with your bare hands? Come on. He keeps moving, listening for a dog barking or a cop shouting. What little light there is comes from the moon behind the cloud cover. By now, he's just feeling his way along. At some point, he slips in some mud and falls face first right into a stream. He crawls out 
lies on his back. He's tired, he's cold, he's scared, and so he closes his eyes just a minute to imagine his dog, Satan, you know, to try to give him some confidence. When he opens his eyes, what does he see? A dog, right above him, looking down face to face. But it's not Mike, and it sure enough isn't Satan. It's a white dog, and the dim moonlight makes it look like it's glowing in the darkness. It's a big dog, big head, you know. Not a pit bull, just some big friendly family dog. And then it licks Jesse right in the face. Jesse sits up and the dog turns and starts to walk away. Then it stops and looks back at him as if to say, you coming? And so Jesse gets it into his head to follow this dog. Because for one thing, the dog could definitely navigate through the darkness better than he could. And since it's obviously a family dog, it might lead him to a house where he could steal a car. Plus, if Mike gets to them first, he could shove this dog at the canine and maybe they'd get into a fight and he could get away. And so Jesse follows this white dog through the dark woods. And he's desperately wishing it would go faster. But the dog's in no hurry. You know, he's just ambling along like he didn't have a care in the world. And Jesse notices that it's an old dog from the way his hind end had a little limp in it. And when the dog would stop to scratch, Jesse would pat it gently and whisper, Come on, buddy, let's go now. Come on, let's go home. Go home. And pretty soon, the white dog leads Jesse out of the woods and up to this house. And there's a yard light so he can see. There's an old car in the driveway. And he checks the door, but it's locked. And the dog gives him that come on look and walks up to the front porch of the house. But he can hardly make it up because of his hip problem. So Jesse lifts his rear end up so he can make it up. And he follows the dog up on the porch. Suddenly, the front door of the house opens. And a little old lady looks out. And she looks right at Jesse. And she says, Oh, you poor dear, come in out of the cold. And she reaches out and takes his hand and pulls him into the house. And Jesse's thinking, if it's just this little old lady living here, he could just take her car keys one way or another and steal the car. The lady shuts the door and calls out, Ansel, we have a visitor. And then she turns to Jesse and says, Oh, you're soaking wet, come on. And she leads him to the bathroom and tells him to go in and take a hot shower, and she'll bring him some of her husband's clothes as they were the same size. So Jesse's thinking, what unbelievable luck. So he takes off his orange jailbird overalls, takes a nice hot shower, and puts on the clothes, combs his hair with a comb he finds on the sink counter, and voila, a new man in a perfect disguise. As soon as he steps out of the bathroom, Lady Luck strikes again. The old lady calls him into the kitchen, and she's made him pancakes and bacon and sorghum syrup, his favorite. He sits down to eat. And then her husband comes in, and he's got this big smile on his face, and he introduces himself. They're Ansel and Lydia Shepard. And Ansel had been a mailman, and Lydia had been a maternity nurse, and she pulls out this big scrapbook to show Jesse photos of all these young mothers and the babies she had helped deliver. And they're both, you know, dementedly hospitable to this tattooed stranger who had showed up at their house in an orange jumpsuit with county jail stenciled in big letters on the back. So finally, when he could get a word in edgewise, Je- Jesse asks him, can I borrow your car? And just to sweeten the deal, he adds, I need to see my girlfriend. She's pregnant. You know, he thinks he's being pretty crafty, scamming the seniors. And of course, Ansel reaches into his pocket and gladly hands him his car keys. 
So Jesse thanks him and goes out, and Ansel and Lydia follow him outside, and Ansel's giving him advice on how to handle the old three on the tree. Well, as soon as Jesse gets in the driver's seat, he sees what three on the tree means. Stick shift, with the stick on the steering column. No way is he going to drive this getaway car. So he asks him if they'd give him a ride. Of course, love to. So Jesse gets in the back seat, and the shepherds get in front, and Ansel says, okay, where does she live? Who? Your girlfriend. Jesse had almost forgotten that he used her for his excuse. But he figures, yeah, go to the girlfriend's trailer. She's got a car he can drive. And besides, he'd have the chance to pay her back for betraying him. So off they go. Ansel and Lydia yapping cheerfully and Jesse brooding about what to do with Josephine and how to get a car. All his cards are coming up aces, and he feels like he's getting his outlaw mojo back. Finally, they pull up to Josephine's trailer on a lonely stretch of dirt road, and he had still not decided what he was going to do beyond take her car. So they get out of the shepherd's car, and he sees a suitcase lying on the ground next to Josephine's car, and the front door of the trailer is open. He's just about to tell the shepherds they can go home now when a scream comes out of the trailer, and they all run inside. Josephine is sitting on the floor with her back against the wall. She's sweating and breathing hard. Her knees are spread and she's holding her belly. Lydia hurries to her side and calls out, She's in labor! The baby's crowning! And she starts calling out orders for Ansel and Jesse to do this or that and trying to comfort Josephine. There's no landline and no cell service, so they can't call 911. Ansel asks Lydia, Should we drive her to the hospital ourselves? Lydia says there's no time for that. This baby's about to be born. And she's barking out orders to Ansel. And Jesse's standing there, shell-shocked, not knowing what to do. Then he realizes this is the perfect time to make his escape. He starts looking for Josephine's purse. And finally, when he sees it on the floor near the front door, he opens it and rummages around inside. He can hardly think with all that screaming and groaning going on. I mean, he had bred dogs and seen the bitches birth litters before, but this, this was, was scary. Birthing pit bulls was a walk in the park compared to this. He finds the keys, and he stands up, and he's about to go out the front door when he sees blue lights flashing down the road. Josephine screams out, Jesse! As he turns toward her, Ansel walks up to him and hands him something wrapped in a towel. Reflexively, he takes it. Ansel says, It's a boy. Congratulations. Before Jesse can say or do anything, Ansel says to him, You know, son, it's a miracle you found our house tonight. God led you to our house. Praise Jesus. Jesse hated that kind of talk. His disgusting mother with her Bible quotes, that jerk judge with his so-help-you-God crap, Jesse felt the poison boil in him, and he yells, No, he didn't. It wasn't God. Turn it around. It wasn't G-O-D. It was D-O-G. And he laughs at his cleverness. Jesus didn't lead me anywhere. It was a dog that led me to your house. A plain old dog. Ansel says, It was the Lord that led you. Jesse rages at him. Shut up. It was a dog, a plain white dog with a pink collar, and, and he had a crooked tail, and he limped. Like, like he had something wrong with his hind end. Hell, it's your dog, isn't it? He laid down on your porch. Just then the baby cries, and Jesse looks at him. Ansel says, this dog? Jesse looks up. Ansel's showing him a photograph of a dog. 
Yeah, that's it, Jesse says. See, I told you, Jesus didn't lead me anywhere. That dog did. That's sugar, Ansel says. Friendliest dog in the whole world. We used to say he was an angel, come down to earth to spread love, didn't we, Lydia? Then he looks back at Jesse. Sugar died three years ago. I buried him out in the yard. The blue strobe light of the patrol car comes through the front window and flashes across the living room walls. Jesse's staring at the baby in his hands, confused. Ansel looks out the window and says, It's the police. Lydia says, Tell them to come in here. They've got to take this girl and the baby to the hospital. Stat, she's bleeding pretty bad. And so, Josephine and the baby get taken to the hospital, and Jesse gets taken back to jail. And then, more weird things start to happen to Jesse. For one thing, the next time he goes to clean out the canine area, Mike, the police dog, treats him different. Before, he used to growl at Jesse. The cops got a kick out of that. Now, Mike treats Jesse like his best friend. I mean, wagging his tail, jumping up on him, licking him, whining and barking when Jesse leaves. It gets so that Mike won't even eat unless it comes from Jesse. And he doesn't even want to go out on patrol anymore. He wants Jesse to go too. The cops don't know what the heck's going on. They accuse Jesse of putting drugs in the dog food. But Jesse knows it's not drugs. It's the white dog. That zombie dog, whatever it was, had licked him in the face, left its scent, and Mike could smell it. Jesse starts to have these dreams. I mean, real vivid dreams like visions at night, especially this one. Jesse's walking in the woods, following the white dog. And all around, there are other dogs like fighting pit bulls and German shepherd police dogs and whatnot. And they're stalking him. And walking alongside the white dog is Satan, Jesse's champion pit bull. And Jesse's desperately trying to get Satan to see all these enemy dogs all around. But Satan's just walking along, la-di-da, like he doesn't see the danger. And then they come to this place where the path splits. And the white dog keeps trucking straight. And Satan goes to the left and heads off toward this dark cave. And he goes in and he disappears. The white dog is heading to what looks like a clearing in the woods, like a meadow, and it's full of light. And Jesse's terrified. He wants to follow Satan for protection. But the white dog has his strange, powerful pull on him, so he's stuck with these evil, bloodthirsty dogs circling all around. And it's at that point in his story that Jesse looks at Finch with this look of absolute desperation on his face. And he says, You gotta help me, Pastor Finch. And Finch... He looks at Jesse and he says, real calm, Son, the light in the clearing is Jesus. If it takes following a white dog to find him, then do it. It's the way to salvation. And Jesse looks at Finch like that was totally not what he wanted to hear. And he says, follow the... What? No, no. What I need you to do, you got to take this white dog out of my head. Cast it out. Come on. You're a preacher. Can't you cast out demons? Finch says, Son... I have more than a mustard seed of faith in God, and I believe I could cast out a demon from you. But in terms of your dream, it ain't the white dog that's the demon. It's Satan. Jesse looks at him like Finch isn't making any sense. So Finch says, Jesse, to put it in terms of your dream, you should follow the white dog into the clearing. Jesus is the light. He will protect you. He loves you, son. And Jesse just explodes. Bullshit! It ain't Jesus in the clearing. Finch says, how can you know that, son, if you don't go look? 
Jesse says, I did look. Last night when I had my dream, I went to the edge and I looked in. And there was somebody there, but it wasn't Jesus. I know that for a fact. It wasn't Jesus. Well, who was it? You could see Jesse's jaw clench, and he glared at Finch. It was my old man. He was sitting on his stump with his elbows on his knees and his head down like this. He wouldn't protect me. He don't care about me. I ain't no fool. I go out in the open, and those other dogs will find me and eat me alive. Then he leans in toward Finch, and he says, I need you to get rid of the white dog for me. And Finch says, Jesse, son, now I'm not an expert in dreams, and I can't rightly tell you if your dreams are genuinely prophetic or the figment of a diseased imagination, but you have to understand this. Satan is the demon. The dark cave is hell. It's full of eternal pain and torture like you can't even conceive, and there's no coming back once you go in. Jesus is the light and the truth. You are being called to follow him to eternal life in heaven. That's as plain as I can make it, Jesse says. Satan's not a freaking demon. Satan's a dog. I bred him and trained him up myself. And I told you it wasn't Jesus in the clearing, so stop telling me it was. Don't you see what's going on? Look, Pastor Finch, I'm in jail, and it's only going to get worse. I'm going to get transferred to the pen as soon as there's space. I'm not an idiot. The joint is full of fighting dogs, just like in the woods in my dream. If I'm going to survive, I have to be tough. I have to be strong. I have to have a fighting dog in me and by my side. Don't you see? That white dog ain't no fighter. If all I have is that damn white dog, those other dogs will tear me up. In real life, not in my dreams. To survive. That takes a certain mentality, you know. I need Satan in and the white dog out. That's what I need from you. That's what I'm asking. Look, he says, I'm a father now. I know that. I've got a baby boy. If I ever get out of here, I promise I'll be a good father. Hell, I'll make him go to church if you want me to, but I have to survive this place first. Can't you understand that? The white dog is weak. If I follow him, I'll be weak, and I won't make it out of here. You can talk about eternal life all you want, but I have to make it out of the joint alive. I need my edge. I need that white dog out of my head now. So Finch takes a different tack. He tells Jesse about all the jails and, and prisons he's been to and all the different inmates he's ministered to and trying to persuade him not to be so afraid that there are plenty of Christians in prison and he'd be safe just like they are if he'd do what they did and follow the Lord. Jesse still isn't buying it. Finch glances at me. So I say, Jesse, you're a betting man, aren't you? I mean, dogfighting is a betting game, right? He looks at me for the first time. And I say, I'm a gambler too. Or I was. Not dogfighting, though. Poker. You ever play poker? And he says, yeah, me and the guys played. Why? Well, in poker, we pay attention to tells. You know what a tell is? Uh, it's when the other guy gives off some kind of um clue. Yeah, that's right. A clue. Some gesture he makes, and he doesn't realize he's making it. But by making it, he's revealing what kind of hand he has and how he intends to bet or bluff. Jesse says, what's your point? I say, your dog, Satan, what happened to him? He says, they put him down. Bastards killed my dog for no reason. And he wiped away a tear. I kid you not, I am not making this up for effect, but he actually shed a tear thinking about his dog. All right, I say. And since then, have you seen him in real life? 
He says, what, my dead dog? No, of course not. What are you driving at? I lean forward. Jesse, you said you saw both dogs in your dream, right? And you saw the white dog in real life, not in a dream, even though he was dead. He looks at me like he's trying to piece together what I'm saying. That's a tell, Jesse, a big one. In your dream, Satan goes off and hides in a cave, right? He's out of the picture. In poker, we call that folding. But the white dog's still in the game. Not only that, but unlike Satan, the white dog appears to you in real life. That's a tell, too. You know what it says? Jesse says, what? It says the white dog has a lot more power than Satan. In poker terms, Satan's three sixes and the white dog's a straight flush. I've won over a million dollars in my poker career, Jesse, and if I had the choice between Satan and the white dog, I know which hand I'd bet on. No doubt about it. No bluffing required. I can tell he's making at least some sense of what I'm saying, so I go on. Look, Jesse, try it out on your practice table. He says, practice table? I say, yeah. Your dreams are your practice table, Jesse, different from real life. The chips are all imaginary. So the next time you dream about it, give it a shot. Follow the white dog. Play that hand. See what happens. I can see you got the urge. It's a tell. So Finch pulls a Bible from his bag and slides it across the table. He says, Jesse, life ain't no game, poker or dogfight. But I can see how it might seem like it sometimes. Here, I mark some passages in here that might help you find your way. Call me whenever you need to. God bless your son. And with that, we shook Jesse's hand and left. Just before I went out of the room, I glanced back. Jesse had stood and was being led out the door on the other side of the room by a guard. He had left Finch's Bible on the table. On the way home, I was kind of concerned that I might have pissed off Finch with my poker move, but he didn't mind. He said it was clear to him that Jesse wasn't responding to his message, and he was actually grateful that I was able to make some kind of positive connection. He says things, even holy things, rarely happen the way we expect them to. He also said that since I was the one who made the connection, Jesse might decide to contact me in the future, and he asked me if I was ready for that. Tell you the truth, I don't know if I am. I mean, I'm no preacher. I don't know how to minister to anybody. I'm not religious. I'm not a shrink. I don't even play poker anymore. What the hell do I know? I should have kept my mouth shut. I went along hoping to get a story out of it, and I did. But like an idiot, I inserted myself into the story. Well, if I learn anything more about Jesse and the white dog, I'll let you know. I guess I'll sign off for now. And remember, this podcast is brought to you by Little White Cabin. So please, if you like this, go to our website or Amazon and bag yourself a copy of our novels, The Book of Cain and The Relic, A Sea Story, both by Jeff Lowe. Excellent reads. This is Oscar Bronx signing off. As my old friend Manny Conrad would say, see you in the funny papers. Peace.